Stay tuned for The Lynn Show. Today, I'm airing an interview with someone you might call a hybrid artist. Bill Buckman is a gifted jazz musician and composer. He's a talented and successful artist and art educator, or I think he would rather be called a creativity educator. He is also a passionate poet. I'm going to start the show with a composition of his called Bluesy from his album Art of Jazz, in which he is joined by local musicians Don Mopsick on bass and Chuck Parr on drums. That will be followed by my interview with Bill, in which he will talk about the way in which he became aware of, drawn to, and finally, one might say, compelled to pursue the art of jazz, the art of abstract painting, the art of teaching creativity, and the art of poetry. This is a very interesting, one-of-a-kind story of a very interesting, one-of-a-kind man. So hang on, here come the show.
Hello, and welcome to The Lynn Show. So that was Bluesy by Bill Buckman and his trio. The Lynn Show is about being the person you really are, not to the person you think you have to be, not the person other people are, not the person somebody may have told you you had to be, or even told you you were, not even the person you may currently think you are, but to the person you really are. Unfortunately, too many people have experiences in their childhoods which discourage them from being something that they really are. And because children are capable of pretending that they are not who they really are, some get so good at the pretense that they come into adulthood having forgotten important things about themselves. The Lynn Show is about saying that if this happened to you, it may not be too late to recover what you may have had to leave behind. In my show, I interview people who make their living or their life with an art, because when you listen to them, you can hear what it sounds like to be who you really are. And in my interview with Bill Buckman, what you can hear is a man who is hyper-aware of everything that spoke to him, everything that said, this is mine. And he was able to embrace, to pursue, and to become all of the things that he was drawn to and interested in and fell in love with. It's a lovely story. And so now here is Bill Buckman to tell it. Okay, I'm here with Bill Buckman. And I'm explaining to Bill that I interview people who make their living or their life with an art. Now, I have always known you as a musician. So when Georgia told me that you were going to be appearing at the Poetry Life event as a poet, um, I discovered that there are at least two arts to which you have given your life and maybe even more. Would you, how do you define yourself? Well, it's quite impossible. (laughs) Yes, I'm sure that's right, right. And uh, no matter how hard I try. But um, the truth is, in my way of looking at things, a a poet is someone who makes poetry with whatever they do. Or making music. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, of course, pre-written poetry has a very big musical element. And originally, uh, poetry was usually sung. It was really a song. All the early poems, generally speaking, are called songs. And for that matter, all the poetry in the Bible, a psalm is a song. Yes, of course. And so uh, the division is almost non-existent or very thin. And it took me a long time to discover this myself. Uh, Except that in you, they always were joined. Well, I was making music and I was painting and actually... If someone asked me how I define myself from a purely professional perspective, I consider myself a visual artist Ah, most. Okay, so I only have one question. Yeah. And uh, it's a little difficult to ask it of you. Um, my, my question is, can you remember and can you tell me the very first time in your life that you were drawn to any of these pursuits? Actually, I do. Yes. And it was when I was probably two or three years old. Mm-hmm. It was one of the first times, of the many times that my making art got me in trouble. <laughs> Decided that the wall next to my bed was a very good place. I think a lot of kids actually yeah. do this. 
to make some art. I think that's our original cave art that we all have. I believe my mother had told me about God. I don't know how, you know, how great a job she did of trying to define that. It's difficult to define the best of times. But at any rate, I got some idea of it and I decided I would draw a picture of God. Really excited about that. Yeah. So I made a big crayon drawing on the wall. Did not please my mother. Uh, what did you use? A to... crayon. And still a lover of crayons and, and drawing. And I'm actually a drawing teacher. So oh, my goodness. Well, well, okay. So, but given that it didn't go down well, right. it's interesting that you continue to be interested in it and pursue it. So, Well, now you, want, now you understand me perfectly. <laughs> oh, I see. I see. Oh, my God. Okay, good. Well, that's, I, I'm really interested in that. So, so your first exploration into things creative was, was visual, was creating something visual. Well, this was just an experience, uh, you know, it's something, it was a memorable experience yes. because I was so shocked that everyone wasn't thrilled. That's <laughs> yes, right, right. And right. Uh, so one of my next, I've been, I uh, have been thinking about this because I've taken up the flute recently. And, uh, and, and so I remember in second grade, uh, everyone in the class was given one of these little things. It was called a tonette, or it's an ocarina. It's really a plastic recorder. And th these were nice days. You may remember them when they used to give us stuff. <laughs> I don't know where this stuff came from. They would give us trees. and Everyone in the class got a recorder. And I picked it up, and I could immediately understand it and play it. Yeah. And I came home, and I showed my mom. And... Uh, that didn't lead to me getting music lessons or anything like that, but it was a memorable moment because it told me something. And uh, it took me quite a while. I was, I was eight years old before I took up a musical instrument, and I was 13 before I took up my instrument, which is the piano. So, so did you ask? You know, it was funny. My brother, uh, God bless us all, he's my closest friend on the earth, and he was the one getting piano lessons. Well, he's doing piano lessons, so I guess you're going to do something different. I don't know. It, I have no, I've never figured that one out. So what did they give you? Tap dancing lessons. <laughs> I see. Oh, yeah. That was a catastrophe. I oh, mean, was it? I'm sorry. To this day. Really? Yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> that's out of my realm. And I couldn't even see the point. And I often think about that too, because it turns out that uh, being a jazz musician, and having gotten to know some of the greatest jazz drummers in the world and played with some of them, I learned that many of them were tap dancers, excellent tap I'm dancers. I'm not surprised. It's all about rhythm. Right. right. So many drummers are great tap dancers. So now if someone could have, at that tender age, somehow shown me the point that this actually had to do with music, yeah. which I, I, didn't, I didn't recognize that. To me, it just seemed to have to do with trying to get my feet to do things that they couldn't do even though they were trying to do it to music? Well, I don't know if we were. I don't recall any music. No, I don't think... I, I think it, oh. when you start tap le lessons, I don't think there's music. I think you're just... You're oh, taught how to move. That's right. I would Probably think. if they had started you with music, it would have been different. Might have, I might have become a drummer. <laughs> God, God forbid. Okay, so eight years old, you... You take tap lessons. I, okay, and then at some point you say, listen, I also want to take piano lessons? Or Well, we moved in, in the other school. I, I don't recall exactly, but 
somewhere I had seen brass horns and I was attracted to the brass and I wanted to play the trombone, that attracted me. And so we went to the music store and my arm was not long enough to play the trombone so I came home with the trumpet. <laughs> and that's how I became a trumpet player. But by the time I was 12, and I was already interested in jazz, and I saw that if you, and to this day, if you want to play jazz on the trumpet, you got to call up some friends and you got to get together to make a jam session. And that's often difficult. And a friend of mine played the piano, and I saw that he didn't need anybody else to make music. And I, so I decided that's the instrument that I want. And you said, I'd like to have piano lessons. Yeah. And then they gave you piano lessons. Well, then they looked for teachers, all of whom I rejected, because where I lived, there was no one that could teach jazz, and I was only interested in jazz. And you were how old now? Twelve. Twelve. Thirteen. And how did you discover jazz? Mostly a friend of mine, the same one who played the piano, he also played the accordion, and uh, we became friends in seventh grade, and I think I went home for what is today called a play date. And he, and he played me some Dave Brubeck, and he played some jazz on the piano, and uh, yeah. it just struck uh, the chord that somehow I was instantly, this was something to love and something to be excited about. Okay, so did they finally find you a teacher, or? I never found a jazz teacher, ever, in, while I was in Albany, New York. Uh, well, who was teaching your friend? He took accordion lessons. Ah. That's a great question. <laughs> because it took me years to realize that that was the explanation. I see. I, I see. <laughs> I see. Okay. So you settle for a middle-of-the-road kind of teacher so, so that you can learn the notes and the... And Actually, yeah, I'd already been playing the trumpet for a while. And I, as I mentioned at oh, the right. beginning, I'm a kind of a stubborn person. So I decided to teach myself. And I studied from recordings and with my ear. Wow. And I, that's how I got into the blues because the blues is very accessible, and uh, which I still play today, and uh, on, aside from jazz. So I had a very half-baked musical education as a kid. So, so this is the music road. Right. Are you drawing? Are you writing poetry? Are you doing any of that stuff as a child? Well, my, my mom always wrote poetry so that seemed like a natural thing and my home was always was there was a lot of art music artistic things uh, and activities and occasionally even people everybody knows this photography book called the family of man mm -hmm. from the museum museum of modern art i started drawing a lot of those pictures uh, copying those photographs and jfk was elected president and i like many other people was very very smitten with him and I, I did a, a portrait of him in his inaugural hat, which I still have somewhere in pencil. I did two drawings of JFK, and that was sort of the beginning of, of realizing that I could really draw. Every one of these things is a really long process, how it evolved. At that time, you didn't look at these things in terms of career. Do you know when it occurred to you to think in terms of using any of these things as a, a life path or, dare I say, making a living? Well, you're really getting my the real true biography today, Lynn. i got to say, you're going right for the gusto here. When I was 16, my dad's brother's wife uh, and my mother were both quite 
serious oil painters. Um, and my, my aunt was the more, most serious, I would say, because she did make a lifelong kind of side career of it. And they knew I was art interested, and they had their daughter, my cousin Diane, was about the same age, and they invited me to come stay with them in uh, East Hampton on Long Island, where my uncle had a boat we could all sleep on, and then I could attend painting lessons for two weeks at an absolutely fabulous place, which used to be known as The Barge. And it was run by Victor D'Amico, who was one of the leading educators in the country and actually was in the forefront of the movement of establishing education programs in museums nationwide. He was a really brilliant, quite a well-known educator. So my first real art lesson was with a top guy and, uh, and we did figure drawing with a nude model every morning and then we did an oil, oil painting every afternoon. And I did a finished oil painting every day. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Did everybody do a finish? No. no, I didn't. I can't imagine. No. And then this was, a, the barge was, uh, was literally a, a large, uh, very large building that was originally a boat. And uh, it was right on the beach in East Hampton, which was is absolutely gorgeous beaches. And, of course, now one of the most popular spots on the planet for... Uh, people who can afford it. But at any rate, every day I would take a walk on that beach and, and I was in heaven. This was my definition of heaven. And uh, so by the time those two weeks were over, I was 100% convinced that this is what I was going to do with my life. Wow. And I came home and announced that to my parents, <laughs> which was the last thing they were expecting to happen and the worst thing they could possibly imagine to have happened. This is like the painting of God. Yes. You, you just were completely unprepared for... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? it, it continues like this I for see. a long time. I see. Okay. So they told you in no uncertain terms... My, literally, I, my mother's, who was a wonderful artist, and in, in my adult years, at a certain point, once we'd reconciled this, they were great supporters of me and my endeavors, uh, once I had reached the age of 30 or something. But um, her comment, which was a classic, and which I didn't understand at that moment because I didn't know the word, was, what, do you want to live in a garret all your life? And I was thinking, well, what's a garret? What's a garret, right. That, that, that sounds good. Yeah. You know, maybe it's something nice and interesting. Mm -hmm. So, uh, <laughs> and I've lived in a few, I think. Mm -hmm. Well, I didn't call them that. So, um, so then I was going to a suburban high school uh, in suburban upstate New York, uh, where football and sports was about the only thing that really counted. And at the age of 16, I was an oil painter. And a trombonist, yeah, and, right. and uh, also a budding piano player. But all that uh, alienation, I have to look upon today with, with gratitude because uh, it, it did drive my contrarian spirit to say, all right, this is really what I'm going to do. Yeah, it served you. Yeah. It might have undermined someone else, but that wasn't the impact it had for you. Uh, yeah, no. I'm a very persevering and determined type of person. I think contrarian was correct, Yeah, actually. Yeah. However it was going to serve you in the long run, it must have been pretty unpleasant for a number of years to feel not connected to anybody 
really. I mean, you wouldn't be connected to your fellow students and you were not feeling really supported by your family. Well, but I mean, what happened, I, I have to focus on the good stuff that happened. So the good stuff that happened was that my mom was studying with one of the uh, greatest uh, figure a figurative artist in America at that time, whose name was Fletcher Martin, and was widely known in America. His paintings, he was actually on the cover of Life magazine wow. with his paintings. And he, unfortunately, the figurative artists uh, in America, once the abstract expressionists came along in the late 40s, they were at, it totally wiped out their careers. So, so he was teaching in an art center in Albany, so my next art lessons after Victor D'Amico were with Fletcher Martin, who uh, was a, a true master painter and drawer. And I took figure uh, drawing lessons again. Well, wait, yeah. wait, 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 because this is an interesting thing. Yeah. Given that your parents were horrified, yeah. um, they didn't discourage you. They didn't say you can't have lessons. They didn't say, well, we're going to stop this in its tracks, right? My mother was painting and studying herself. Right. So... She couldn't exactly refuse my request. Another parent might have. Yeah, well, there was a, there was a limit to uh, the opposition was was not that onerous. Yeah, yeah, it yeah, was, yeah. It, it was you know maybe they were just hoping well this will pass. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Right. So your commitment to art is progressing. Are you? I'm assuming you're taking piano lessons, and your commitment to Piano is... I used to come home from school and practice for three hours every day until my grandmother would shout from the kitchen, Billy, I've got a headache. <laughs> and then that was the end of that for the day. So, uh, and then I was, again, I was painting, oil paintings, you know, because actually, I have to point out, my mother did actually stop painting and she turned over art studio to me, and she had an art studio in, in the attic, so I had an actual wow. functioning art studio. You know, I was thinking that it would not have been unreasonable for her to assume that you would do the same thing she did, which was have this sort of on the side, you know, not to... I think other, after that original, uh, the, the original shocking moment when I announced that right. I knew what I was doing for the rest of my life, I don't think they were, I don't think they were you know, burdened with thinking that they were just riding with the waves. And, uh, right. you know, when it came time to apply to college and I applied to art school, they went along with it. Well, then, okay, hold on. Yeah. So you're playing piano, you're... Painting uh, oil paintings. And in painting the, it, right. In 1960 or 61 in yeah. suburban Albany. Yeah, you, so, you, are, you are a fish out of water. Totally. For sure. And but well, wait, 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 okay. wait. So, but you decide that art is what you don't go to a conservatory. You don't study. You know, you don't major in music. No, because I felt very um, stifled because I never found a, a teacher. Uh, yes. So I was, and I and it was very hard to obtain good information about jazz. You to learn how to play jazz, you need a lot of good information, and that holds true today as well. And uh, and today, however, you can get it all online. But then uh, I I would occasionally meet someone who knew the chord changes to some song that I wanted to learn, and that would be like a huge advance. So uh, it was a slow process, and I didn't see any way that I was ever likely to become a professional musician. Really. I love this. You thought you were going to make a living as a painter, but you didn't see how you could do that as a musician, right? 
I, but truthfully, I was not practically minded, and I did not look at things right. in terms of yeah. making a living. Right. Uh, I looked at things in terms. I was just. This is. I, I had an enormous curiosity, which I still have today, and and I. These were things that interested me. I did very well in school, but those the schoolwork did not interest me. The subjects didn't interest me, and not, they didn't catch fire. These things I was on fire with, and uh, so. So okay, so you go to art school. Where do you go? Cornell University. Oh well, very nice. Okay, and then now you're. But catastrophic. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't just Cornell then. I, I have since found out, in 1964, if you went to art school, most places in America, they were, at, you know, art schools tend to teach the same thing and during, and, and during any period of time. You'll get pretty much the same line anywhere you go. And the line then was, art, you know, abstract expressionism had been the big thing and the teachers at Cornell were, uh, lesser abstract, uh, abstract expressionists that, you know, never became that famous, although one of my teachers ultimately, uh, you know, does have a, a significant reputation as an abstract expressionist. But at that time, they got jobs teaching because they had to and uh, didn't necessarily want to. Mm. And at any rate, the I and the, and abstract. There was no teaching about abstraction. Uh, there was no knowledge of it. So literally, uh, our teacher gave us a materials uh, list when we came to school. All the materials were available at the school store. He informed us, and we'll see you in June. Oh my God! You're all geniuses, and we'll see you in June. Oh. And I was 17 at the time. That's not really. A good thing to tell a 17 year old. But I thought it was unique to Cornell for many years and since I also got into school at what was then known as Carnegie Institute and today is Carnegie Mellon mm -hmm. where Andy Warhol went, I always entertained this idea that <laughs> why didn't we go at least look there and uh, which we didn't because it was Cornell and yes, my brother yeah. was going to Cornell right. as well. So and what was he going to study? Uh, my older brother he was studying uh, Psychology, right? Things like that. I don't remember. Which they that. did teach. Yeah, he was taking real subjects. Mm -hmm. And uh, <laughs> but about ten years ago, at one of the uh, teaching expos that I've taught at around the country, where art teachers from all over the country, many around our age, uh, end up. I was sitting at uh, on a break at lunch with a bunch of them. And we got on this subject. And he mentioned, one of the guys mentioned he went to Carnegie Institute at exactly the same year. And I told him this, what I just told you, I always had this idea that I, this had been a you know, terrible mistake. And he said, no, I had the exact same experience. <laughs> so he left, as I did, he left Carnegie Institute. I left Cornell within two years. Very confused by this point, because now the thing that I had cared about uh, I mean, literally, there were, it's hard to even imagine by today's standards of information, there was no one on the planet yeah. that could teach you how to make an abstract painting. It had it, abandoned it, you. Well, not quite, but... No, I mean the... the it's just, the, just the form, you know, mm -hmm. I just, I, you know, I just decided I would continue on my own 
again stubborn, without without cessation and uh, follow my own muses and uh, and the, by the way the origin of the word muse that's the same as music <laughs> so anyway but i was also i had learned enough music that i was uh, playing in rock and blues bands and doing quite well at that and actually making money at that and uh, we were a, quite a popular band at cornell and uh, almost but not quite a legend and um, so I continued with my music and art. I spent a few years during the late 60s basically living the life of a hippie artist musician. Mm -hmm. and well, you could hardly have picked a better time and space that, to do it. It was all... You finally, you are finally right. where... <laughs> finally, what I was doing was what was hip yes, and, right. and cool. And, uh, and amazingly, uh, I went through a healthy transformation uh, that at the same time I met a top music teacher in Boston. Uh, by this time, I, it's just too long a story, but I was second time around at going to Boston University, studying English, heard about this extraordinary music teacher and that sounded like what I had always been looking for. Someone who was sympathetic and modern thinking, it was hip and understood jazz, classical, everything. And that was exactly what she was. And uh, her name was uh, Madame Margaret Shawoff, and she was the mother of a, a very famous jazz musician, one of the original four brothers from Woody Herman's band named Sir Shawoff, uh, playing along with Stan Getz. And uh, so I went to see her, and that's where I, for the first time, I really came into contact with the world of a good education in the things that I was interested in. I was 24. Wow. It doesn't even make sense by today's standards. It, it couldn't happen if you tried. The information was such, and, and I was such, that, I mean, sure, maybe I could have figured out, well, just go to New York. But that was a tough thing to do. And I did spend quite a bit of time in New York. So at any rate, I started studying music, and she set, set me up with various music teachers, including Rand Blake, one of the great music educators in the world, still teaching at the New England Conservatory, a recipient of the MacArthur Fellowship, and a bona fide genius, um, also as a teacher. So suddenly I was studying with two of the greatest teachers in the world, and then Gunther Schuller came uh, into the picture. Huh. He was the head of New England, and he was good friends with Rand, and they decided what New England Conservatory needed was a new music department called the Third Stream Music Department, which was a movement that both Rand and Gunther were involved with, which was a kind of blending of classical and jazz, and ultimately it was kind of almost a forerunner of world music. And so I came to one of my lessons with Rand, and he said, would you like to go to the New England Conservatory? And I said, yes, I would. He said, well, we're having, we have a new department in September. We have no students. <laughs> now, this is one of the best conservatories in the world, and there's six, there were 608 students when I went there. That was undergrad and graduate. So to get in there, and to this day, is like threading the needle. But basically, it was like if I could arrange the finances and if I could work everything out, I was in. Wow. Well, after, after 
so many disappointments and things that don't work out, this is like magic, right? This was magic. Yeah, yeah. So that fall, I started New England Conservatory. I knew enough about music that I actually placed into the sophomore year and uh, went on to get a bachelor's and master's and a good musical education. And after a few more years of by now having suddenly, to my amazement, having become a professional jazz musician, I realized that I'd rather be an artist. <laughs> I see. Because the life of, jazz, of a jazz musician is <clears throat> strange, to put it mildly. Yeah. And which no jazz musician would deny. No, I don't think anybody who's ever known a jazz musician would, would <clears throat> deny. Uh, so you, you chose Garrett. Well, so, yeah, <laughs> that's right. And so at this point, though, I had an excellent artistic education in music, which I felt I could apply mm -hmm. to wherever the holes were in my art education. Because I had, you know, I'd gotten up quite a bit of that, but not enough along the way. So, you know, we could go on forever with the winding paths, pathways. But at any rate, um, the next step really was learning how to approach these things with a practical uh, oh, finally. Yeah. <laughs> right. Finally, it Maybe. occurs to you. At the age of 30. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, that, that's when it happens to a lot of us, exactly. I think. Exactly. Right. Yeah. right. And uh, so, and I'm still, that's still where I'm at. Yeah. Being practical about it these days, which takes a little bit of the fun out of it, but it gives a lot more satisfaction when you actually get uh, some success and uh, get to do it in fun situations, good mm -hmm. situations. So do you want to just say a little bit about what you've been doing since then? Um, well, that, that becomes such a long story. Well, I, 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 well I'm, I, once I figured that I w wanted to be, a, that I was going to be a painter after all, I moved to Europe for 20 years. Oh my, wow. Yeah. Garrett, indeed. Yeah. Yep. And uh, which that seemed, might have seemed like a strange choice, uh, but it was the perfect choice. Yeah, it doesn't seem like a strange yeah. choice. Because, I mean, I felt... Where in Europe? Well, I started in Amsterdam, and because, uh, due to the good advice of a Dutchman I met at a gig, who said, don't start in Paris because no one speaks English. Go to Amsterdam where everyone Everybody speaks English. Everybody speaks English, yeah. And that made sense, so I booked my ticket for Amsterdam, and then I made my way to Paris, and I lived in Paris for a few years, and I was playing music all the time. Mm -hmm. That enabled me to do yes, this. Yes, right. So, and then I uh, ended up getting booked from Paris to Finland, and that took me to Scandinavia, and that was kind of a natural fit for me. So I played in Finland and Norway and Sweden and Denmark, and ultimately I moved to Denmark. So after four years of, of traveling around Europe, then I settled in Copenhagen. Uh, but I want to make the point, which was, for me, this was my graduate school or a PhD in art, because I was using all that time to study the art firsthand in the museums and also getting to know artists there who really were more connected to that tradition because they had never been severed from it. Yes. And they'd been educated there. And uh, 
and putting all the pieces together, uh, which was my original interest. It was always. So, uh, and after 20 years in Europe, uh, being an expatriate is, is not the greatest thing in the world, and uh, it's exciting as can be, but there's a lot of disadvantages. And after 20 years, I'd pretty much had it with the disadvantages. And um, I was married this time with a young child in Denmark, and I wanted my wife and child to experience American culture. And uh, they were interested in that as well. So, and my mom was living in Longboat Key. <laughs> And when visiting her there, I uh, made some connections with the art centers here, and they all were interested in having me teach there. And that was enough of a toehold to say, okay, this is the time, this is the place. Right. So that's the sh about a shorter version I can manage to get us up to at least living here where I've been for the last almost um, 17 years. Wow. And then I've been doing a lot of teaching, a lot of performing, a lot of exhibiting. Uh, I was doing a lot of the performing and exhibiting in Europe, but not the teaching. That was something new. And that ultimately took me all over the country and to Canada, uh, teaching in art centers, and went so far as to develop <clears throat> five DVDs and publish a book on my drawing techniques with Random House, Watson Guptill, and uh, and and develop a line of brushes from China and Japan under oh my, my own name called the Zen brushes, which you can find on Amazon. And uh, so that's as short as I can make it. Oh my God, your mother was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, they, they figured that out. Yes, I, I'm sure I mean, they did. Although I don't think they thought of it in those terms. We all got on the same page. So where yeah, does poetry come in? Where the poetry came in was in my travels around Europe, uh, which um, was a bit like a, a second childhood and uh, was great, a great adventure and great fun. And uh, without any particular, well, at a certain point, I discovered that there were poems floating through my mind, and that there had always been poems floating through my mind, and that I should start writing them down, which is very simple. When the poem starts to run, you just got to stop whatever you're doing. If you're in the shower, you got to get out, and you have to write it down right then, because otherwise it's gone. So I developed that discipline about the time that I went off to Europe and didn't think any more about it. I didn't even think I was writing poetry, and I didn't have, uh, certainly wasn't thinking that I was being a poet or anything like that, but I was writing these poems about my experiences, and <clears throat> this might sound like a strange story, story, but this is true. At a certain point, I, I also went to Europe uh, when I decided to be an artist, so I would be completely away from all of the movements that were dominating at that moment uh, art. In, in the art world. I had a look at what was going on. I'd been away from it for a while. Everything had really changed 180 degrees. I didn't particularly like what was going on, and I certainly didn't feel part of it, and I didn't want to be influenced by it. And it turned out that going to Copenhagen in Denmark was very good from that perspective, because that was, was a place where 
that was less influenced by that in many ways at that time, and I really was able to follow my own line for a long time without <clears throat> being distracted. But, any rate, when I was, there was a certain point, I, so I was for a bunch of years painting without any idea of selling them, showing them. But when I got to Copenhagen, now I decided I had enough of a body of work, which is the essential point that you have to do as an artist before you can go out into the world and present yourself. You have to have a body of work. No one is interested in you otherwise. And I had my first little body of work. And I discovered that when I was going to have my first exhibition, and I'll spare that whole funny long story, that I was going to have to uh, include an artist statement. Every, when you make an exhibition, you have to have an artist statement. To this day, I'm, I'm against them, for the most part, because uh, if your art needs explaining, which a lot of art today does, fine. But my idea is that the art should speak for itself. And <clears throat> the mess, if you can explain it on paper, why make it? I, the artist statement was an explanation of the paintings? Every artist statement, you have to give some kind of justification and explanation You're of kidding. what and why you do. I kid you not. I wish I was kidding. You know, I thought when you said an artist statement, it was some kind of, you know, philosophical thing. It about, is. Yeah. But it's got to be about the work and it's got to somehow Jeez. explain the work. But I, so, but you were very right. The way I thought about it was purely philosophical. And, and I, since I wanted to avoid explaining the unexplainable, <laughs> I spent about a week struggling with this paragraph, <laughs> sitting out in the garden, driving my wife crazy, and, you know, filling notebooks and shrinking them down. And after many days, I had a paragraph. And... <clears throat> And I had two sentences, and the sentences were, art is poetry and art is philosophy. Wow. And now, at that time, which was 1987, that was not a popular view. As a matter of fact, that was the direct opposite, I would say, of generally what's going. And even to this day, well, what's it's the, a minority, it's a minority perspective. Well, what's the opposite? Uh, well, art is what? Art is not art. Art is not art? No. What is it? It's anything you like. Oh my goodness. Um, so anyway, but that's a digression. Once I had written those statements and looked at them, then I remembered I had this plastic bag filled with poems. <laughs> Because that actually is a poem, poetry. right? <laughs> well, if art is poetry, I think I'd better look at my poetry mm -hmm. and see what I think. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then I discovered, you know, they weren't half bad. Mm -hmm. And so I, when I had my next show, I actually built it around paintings that were illustrations of those poems that were put into a book. Wow. And along with that, that became the name of my company and my website and everything later times which is artist poetry which is still my email address and uh, so from that point and so writing that uh, description helped me to understand what I was doing yes okay. it's synthesized for you yeah right okay you're a poet whether you're writing whether you're painting whether you're playing music and then and then I did a lot of study well what does that mean 
still doing that, still contemplating what that means. So, uh, but that gave me focus and it's still sort of my raison d'etre with what I do with my, with my performances. And uh, lately I've gotten to be able to do some things, very poetic things. And uh, so it's progressing. I, I, want, I can't exactly find the word. It gave um, a, uh, a framework, right, for everything that you do. Right. It, uh, it, it did, and it does. But also, well, it also was a, a very, and not just a framework, but an insight. And, yes. and, uh, and that's the most important thing. But just as a funny story, so along with uh, this insight uh, and this exhibition, I just, of course we had to have a multimedia poetry reading for the opening exhibition. This was just about a week before that started happening everywhere. Ah. So, and we sent out this announcement and so many people came that we had to lock the door. <laughs> and one of the people I invited to that opening. Where was this? In Copenhagen. Mm -hmm. Is now my wife. Oh, how nice. But she wasn't able to get in. <laughs> She was locked outside with her nose pressed against the window <laughs> in the January Copenhagen winter. People were so curious that even in that weather, they were standing outside wondering what the hell is going on oh, outside wow. there. So, so the thing is that poetry obviously is a kind of power. There's a power to it. And I saw that uh, with the way people reacted to it. And, uh, and I still think that that's the case. So not only did it give me a framework and an insight, but uh, it's, it's the energy as well. It's kind of the engine. It's the, uh, the, the spirit of what I do. Wow. Okay, so do you want to say a little bit about the event in which you will be participating? Georgia Court puts arranges with the Sarasota community Oh, I think it's just about a week called Poetry Life mm -hmm. with all kinds of events and activities related to poetry which are incredibly exciting and bring a lot of really interesting and exciting uh, poets to town which you don't normally get to hear. And two that are coming this time are two superstars of poetry. One is named Simon Armitage and the other one's named Terence Hayes. Mm -hmm. And for reasons that I have yet to fathom, I'm to be included with them in a panel. <laughs> Well. which we are going to discuss the relationship of poetry and the other arts. It's probably, it probably has something to do with the fact that I cross over so much between the painting and the music, and which apparently they also do. So uh, that promises to be a really interesting panel discussion, that's for sure. Yeah, it seems to me you're the perfect person. And the moderator's going to be Kate Alexander, and it's going to be on February 18th. In the, in, in the afternoon. Okay, good. Um, well, okay, I have one further question. Yeah. Really, you have answered this question, but maybe there's something more you want to say about it. Having given your life to creativity, I mean, essentially that's what you have done in every 
possible way that you can make something from nothing, you have done it. So would you say anything about what such a life has meant to you or what you think about it? Well, I do think about it. I think about that particular point uh, quite often. And, uh, it, you know, for me, the essence of the answer is, or for anybody's life, I think what we are all looking for and hoping for is meaning. Mm -hmm. And that's sometimes a hard commodity to come by. And, or even though it's there, to see it. So, uh, uh, you know, the life of an artist is rich with meaning. It may have other, you know, detriments, but that's not one of them. Lots of meaning, all the time. I think that's a terrific place to stop. Yeah. Thank you so much, Bill. Thank you. My goodness. Thank you. When someone speaks of his life as having meaning, then you know you are listening to someone who is who he really is. It is my hope that when you listen to someone who speaks about his life in this way, you are asking yourself, is this how I feel about my life? Do I feel that my life has meaning? Well, if it does, of course, I'm happy for you. If it doesn't, again, The Lynn Show is about saying it may not be too late to recapture the meaning which you may have had to sacrifice earlier in your life. So as always, I hope that you got something from this show that you can use. We're about to go out on a cut from another one of Bill's CDs. This one is from Out of the Blue, and it's, it's a Mel Torme composition I'm fond of called Born to be Blue.
I'm getting older My hair is turning gray Always oh, in my face and figure I've both seen better days Well, I won't be retiring I won't slip out of sight No, I will not go gentle Into that good night Some goddamn boomerang No, I won't go with a whimper I am going with a bang You see that I have had my shot My time has come and gone Oh, won't I please get off the stage Let someone else get on I won't be relegated or leave without a fight, no I will not go gentle into that good night I won't go with a whimper I am going with a bang Life's a bell I keep on ringing Not a chime that I once rang Seemly, well, I don't give a dang. No, I won't go with a whimper. I am going with a bang. Rising from the ashes, every chance I get, I may be running out of time, but it ain't over yet. Cause me and Sister Phoenix. We won't give up the flight, no, no We will not go gentle into that good night And I won't go with a whimper I'm going with a bang Life's a song I keep on singing Not a tune that I once sang I may not be as juicy Still got some tang, so you won't hear me simper. I may have got to. 